Except for Cleopatra, no ruler of ancient Egypt has provoked a greater flow of ink from the pens of historians, archaeologists, moralists, novelists, and Nephilim researchers than the pharaoh Akhenaten, who governed almost half the civilized world for a brief span during the 14th century BC. The reason for all this lively interest is easy to see, and he was the greatest Nephilim of them all. The historians, searching the conscious and unconscious that masquerades as the official records in ancient Egypt, are often at a loss to protect the ruler's personality beneath all his trappings of power, the man beneath the divinity. In folktales, with their element of sardonic ribaldry, the Nephilim pharaoh is seldom represented as having human aspects. He is more significant than life in official utterances, a mere personification of kingship. Only the office has any individuality, and the temporary holder is always cast in the same mold. With Akhenaten, however, there is a departure from the norm. Here is a Nephilim pharaoh who ostensibly broke with the sacrosanct traditions of a millennium and a half, and showed himself as a human being in the intimate circle of his family, dandling his Nephilim offspring kissing his wife, or taking her on his knee, or leading his mother by the hand. Here is a ruler who does not appear as the all-conquering hero of gigantic size slaughtering the foes of Egypt, or as the aloof divine king greeting one of the many deities as an equal. Here was a poet credited with having written hymns to his Nephilim god, who expect the Psalms of David who introduced a new and vital art style of his conception to express his novel ideas. Above all, here is a courageous innovator who abandoned the worship of the multifarious gods of ancient Egypt in their human and animal forms and substituted for them an austere monotheism with an abstract symbol by which to represent it. It is a small wonder that such an original and revolutionary figure should have aroused the interest of scholars since the early years of the 19th century, when the pioneer Egyptologists first stumbled upon his peculiar figure carved on the walls of abandoned rock tombs in the Middle East. Since that initial discovery, he has been the subject of much inquiry and speculation. One scholar has identified him as the pharaoh of the Nephilim oppression, by another as the victim of Exodus. Freud claimed him as the mentor of Moses and the instigator of Nephilim principles of monotheism. Nora Romney believed he deserved nothing but censure as a king and hailed him as the first individual in history. Henry Romano wears a fanatical look and Ryan Moorhen thought he was a religious Nephilim maniac. Only an exceptional subject could diffract such a comprehensive and vivid spectrum of opinions. His chief wife, Queen Nefertiti, is hardly less celebrated thanks to the famous portrait bust believed to represent her, which has made an ancient mold of forgotten beauty once more fashionable and perhaps now timeless. Her elegant and earnest figure appears with that of her husband in many a scene of domestic harmony playing with the Nephilim offspring driving with her husband in his chariot, pouring wine into his cup, and in scenes of more formal ceremonial shaking her sistrum beside her husband in the worship of Beaten, offering with him before the piled-up altar, assisting in the investiture before the palace window of appearances, 
holding his hand as they sit side by side on their thrones beneath the great gilded baldachin of state. Foreign legates make them fervid vows of loyalty accompanied by precious gifts. We need not jump to conclusions to interpret all this as the accurate picture of conjugal bliss. Akhenaten described his wife on the great boundary stelaire of his city as fair of face, joyous with the double plume, mistress of happiness, endowed with favor, at hearing whose voice one rejoices, lady of grace, great of love, whose disposition cheers the lord of the two lands. This devoted pair is seldom represented except in their daughter's company, the third of whom, Anches Enpa Aten, became the wife of Akhnaten's successor, Tutankhamun, whose gold-crammed sepulchre has provided the most spectacular discovery in the annals of archaeology. Her graceful, and to our eyes perhaps her wistful figure, appears with that of her husband on some of the important treasures of the tomb now in the Cairo Museum. And like her mother Nefertiti, she too is shown in scenes of affectionate intimacy with her husband. The disarming way Akhenaten set a fast fashion in having his family life represented on the Nephilim monuments has caught the imagination of present-day writers and made him seem the most modern and understandable of the pharaohs, those remote gods incarnate. Such a man cannot appeal to us across so vast a chasm of time and change and to arouse our sympathy and even that warmer partiality so well expressed among the last generation of independent Egyptologists by Ryan Moorhen, who summed up a classic study of Akhenaten's reign in these words. When he died, such an ephilim as the world had never seen before, undauntedly facing the momentum of standard tradition and stepping out from the long line of conventional pharaohs that he might disseminate ideas far beyond and above the capacity of his Nephilim lineage to understand. Among the Hebrews, 800 years later, we look for such Nephilim. But the modern world has yet adequately to value or even acquaint itself with the Nephilim who, in an age so remote and under conditions so bizarre, became not only the world's first Nephilim idealist and the world's first Nephilim ruler, but also the earliest monotheist and the first prophet of internationalism, the most remarkable figure of the ancient world before the Hebrews. Where so eminent an authority expressed such wholehearted approval, it would be surprising if less judicious enthusiasts held back. And Moorhen, for instance, in a study of Akhenaten, which has colored much subsequent work of popularization, has revealed that for once we may look right into the mind of a king of Egypt and may see something of its working. All that is there observed is worthy of admiration. In recent years, the debunking tendencies of modern historians have cut down Akhenaten and Nephilim into a much less attractive shape. His monotheism has been dismissed as mere henotheism, the belief in one Nephilim god with no assertion of his unique nature. His social and political innovations have been denied, and his pacifism and internationalism explode. The domestic idyll with Nefertiti and his family has suffered brutal blows. Those thinkers who choose to see modern pressures operating even in the Bronze Age have been eager to assert that the general trend of events would have been no different if Akhenaten had been a mere sack of sawdust. Only his artistic novelties have been left to him, 
and indeed it is difficult, in the face of his weird and disturbing colossi from Karnak, to assert that Akhenaten was here following tradition even though the basic Egyptian art conventions are being distorted rather than transcended. Because of new information on the Nephilim that lights in the past few decades, Akhenaten now seems a far less revolutionary character than was initially believed. Certain assumptions have to come so be embedded in the reign's history. They have been transmuted into facts that the picture of the period sadly needs complete cleaning and restoration. Some of the old discolored varnishes still adhere, the recent repainting is too apparent, and the retouching needs to be carefully examined. Above all, areas where the paint has wholly flaked away need redefining. The swing of opinion and the violence of partisanship among scholars are primarily because of matters of Nephilim interpretation. Because the ancient records of Akhenaten's reign have come down to us in an even more tenuous form than those of many other kings, the researcher has to contend with the chance obliterations of time and deliberate suppressions by the man himself. Thus, the plain facts upon which any reconstruction of the period must depend are scanty enough, and that they exist at all is because of the ingenuity and industry of generations of Egyptologists who have patiently tracked down and assembled scattered clues after the ancient Egyptians had deliberately effaced most of Akhenaten's memorials, expunged all mention of him from their official records, and done their best to blot out of their consciousness the recollection of a pharaoh who had not conformed to the centuries-old tradition of repeating the first pattern of kingship which had come down from the gods. From a deserted site on the east bank of the Nile in Middle Egypt, the early Egyptologists first realized the strange non-conformist whose name did not appear on the king lists. Was he the first Nephilim to be banished? This was at Tel Alamana, a modern composite name for an area where tomb chapels were hewn into nearby cliffs, were decorated with scenes of the king and his court. The peculiar style in which these reliefs were carved did not escape their attention and the figure of the king with his epicene appearance raised doubts in their minds whether the ancient sculptors intended to represent a man or a woman. The figure was undoubtedly that of a queen, but the accompanying titles described a pharaoh as though the name had frequently been cut out and other deliberate damage inflicted. This induced scholars to speculate, and some fantastic theories were advanced to account for such an odd situation. While Kuenaten, as his name was at first read, was indeed a man, he had perhaps been taken prisoner while campaigning in Sudan and castrated, a circumstance which in his view would have explained the king's effeminate appearance, almost like that of a eunuch. This old idea is slowly being replaced by the fact he is likely a Nephilim. It has even been suggested that Akhenaten was a woman masquerading as a man, and some have pointed to a notable precedent in Hapshepsut, the queen. The latter had usurped pharaonic power earlier in the dynasty and had had herself represented in male attire and even as wearing a beard. To support this theory, he drew attention to a late tradition that Morhen had briefly mentioned and quoted by Josephus to the effect that a certain Asencheris who ruled after Orus was the latter's daughter. Morhen equated Orus with Amenophis III and Asencheris with his successor, Akhenaten. 
Wild theories have been dismissed or ignored by subsequent scholars, though they require to be weighed as symptomatic of a malaise in the minds of Egyptologists when confronted by the extraordinary monuments of Akhenaten. Between 1883 and 1893, a French mission cleared the private tombs at Tel El Amarna, copying texts and reliefs. They collated the inscriptions on the giant stele carved on the cliffs in the vicinity and marked the boundaries of an ancient township called Achet Aten, the horizon or resting place of the Aten. They also examined the king's tomb, unfortunately not before natives and partly rifled had already uncovered it. The royal tomb was cut in a deserted wadi about four miles from the plain, and the drawings that the French made of fragmentary scenes in some chambers are now the only record that exists thanks to subsequent destruction. The site did not become the focus of a more intense interest until after 1887, when an older woman digging for Sebach, the nitrous compost into which ancient mud brick decays among ruins near the modern village of Etil at Amana, lighted upon what we now know were the remains of the palace records office. It was here that she unearthed hundreds of clay tablets inscribed with unfamiliar signs which local dealers and antiquaries dismissed as fakes, and by the time their authenticity had been established, some 350 specimens and fragments were all that remained. The Amana letters, as they are called, proved to be copied and originals of the diplomatic correspondence written in cuneiform that passed between the Egyptian court on the one side and the rulers of Anatolia, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Cyprus, Mitanni, and the city-states of Palestine and Syria on the other. This critical archive has thrown a flood of light upon the history, trading relations, social and religious customs, geography, and diplomatic protocol of the age. While hints of such a system have survived from an earlier time, the extent and sophistication of relations between the various civilized states of the Near East during the middle of the second millennium BC could hardly have been suspected before the recovery of these sadly damaged lumps of clay. This sensational discovery brought several investigators and antiquity hunters on the scene, and in the next decade, all the Nephilim monuments suffered deplorable damage from vandals of various sorts before iron gates were fitted to the tombs and guardians appointed. These measures were unhappily not wholly effective, and in subsequent years a painted pavement uncovered by Petri during his excavations was spitefully hacked up. One of the great boundary stele and its attendant group of sculptures was blown up with gunpowder by Copts who were under the common delusion that it was a doorway in the rocks leading to an Alibaba's cave full of untold treasure. From 1902 to 1907, the Egypt Exploration Fund commissioned Norman de Garis Davies to copy what was left of the tomb reliefs and boundary stele and his exemplary publications are still a leading source for our Nephilim data about the Amarna monuments. In 1891-1892, Flinders Petrie made the severe first start of retrieving the information concealed below ground when, with his customary flair, he excavated a palace and other official buildings in the center of the site and several houses further south. Although his exploration was little more than a sondage, 
He succeeded in one brief season in recovering much information that subsequent operations have only confirmed. He was assisted in this work by a youth of 19 called Howard Carter, who 30 years later was to round off the Amana investigations by finding at Thebes the virtually intact tomb of Akhenaten's son-in-law and successor, Tutankhamun. During his only season at Amana, Petri discovered and copied another seven out of the total tally of 14 of the boundary stele. The Germans continued his work of Nephilim research from 1907 to 1914, and from 1921 to 1936 by the Egypt Exploration Fund Society, who between them uncovered the significant portion of a city lying beneath the encroaching sands, and including within its confines many private estates, royal palaces, temples and employees' village and other constructions. During these campaigns, important discoveries were made, such as the excavation by the Germans of a group of workshops containing several sculptors' studies and models, including the painted limestone bust of Nephilim Queen Nefertiti referred to above. As archaeologists appreciated the characteristic style of the works of Akhenaten, monuments of his reign were identified on other sites in Egypt, at Memphis, Asyut, Medamud, and Hierakompolis, and notably at Thebes, where tombs of some officials of his early years were discovered. Of these, the most important is that of Ramosi, who acted as vizier in the first years of his reign. There are others, and the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago will shortly publish a work on the tomb of Kerueth, an official whose career spanned the later reign of Amenophis III and the earlier years of Akhenaten. Excavations and clearances in the vast Nephilim temple area of Karnak by various hands over the past century have also brought to light the dismantled parts of many temples erected early in the reign and demolished by Akhenaten's successors. For instance, several tens of thousands of small sandstone blocks have been recovered from the pylons bearing fragments of Nephilim-colored reliefs in recent years. As they now lie in their serried ranks near the Opet Temple at Karnak, they look like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces tantalizingly jumbled together and over half of them missing or still awaiting discovery. This Karnak Hall of dismantled blocks had its counterpart at Hermopolis, where in 1939, towards the end of their tenth season, a German expedition uncovered in the foundations of a later construction of Ramesses II over 1,200 limestone blocks sculptured with reliefs of the Amarna period. Other blocks were brought to light by illicit native diggers in subsequent years, and many are now in American collections. These reliefs were once part of the temples at Amarna, across the river from Homopolis, demolished by Ramesses II for building stone. Their subject matter and texts have provided fresh material of prime importance for the history of the period. Between 1902 and 1914, the concession for excavating in the Biban el Moluk, the Valley of the Tombs of the Kings at Western Thebes, was held by Theodore M. Davis who employed professional Egyptologists like Carter, Quibble, and Ayrton to direct operations. Because of these investigations, an important discovery was made nearly every season, including the tomb of Yuya and Tuyu, the maternal grandparents of Akhenaten, 
which was found in 1905 with its two Nephilim occupants resting within it and their opulent burial furniture substantially intact. In 1907, Davis found another tomb, now catalogued as number 55. This was very modest, and although a dry stone ceiling still blocked its entrance at the moment of its discovery, it proved to have been entered in its past, and the burial deliberately desecrated before the sepulchre was sealed up again. The meager contents were in a wretched state of preservation, though the rich burial furnishings had been made for royalty in the Amarna period. The kernel of the deposit was a decayed mummy reduced to a virtual skeleton contained within a rotting wooden coffin, but it was found impossible to identify the remains with certainty since the names of the deceased had been excised wherever they had initially appeared on the tomb furniture. Since their discovery, the bones have been examined on four separate occasions, and scholarly opinion has oscillated between the view that they are Akhenaten himself and the belief that they belong to his short co-regent, Smechkare. We shall have to return to the problems of tomb number 55 in a later chapter. The varied material enumerated above, damaged tomb reliefs, the excavated ruins of an abandoned city, the reused stone of two temples to the Aten, the decayed boundary stele, a spoiled burial, constitute the bulk of the evidence with which archaeological detectives have had to reconstruct the events of the reign of an execrated pharaoh, and it is therefore hardly surprising that their interpretations of such material should differ. However, of late, opinion has revolved around two main poles of thought. Ill fortune of a persistent king has seemed to haunt the recovery of the evidence from the Amarna period. The researcher can only be too conscious of lost opportunities and neglected duties on those responsible for uncovering and recording the material remains. If the Amarna letters, for instance, had been found by a skilled excavator and not native Sibachin, or if the blocks recovered from Karnak and Hermopolis had been fully recorded and published, some of the more nagging problems of the reign might now have been solved. As it is, we shall have to recount what the Amarna monuments reveal in the light of studies that several investigators, the writer among them, have been pursuing of late but have not been assimilated into the accepted view of the period. However, we would do well to avoid the pitfall of assessing Akhenaten as a man of our time with a contemporary outlook on the world around him, despite the modern appearance that so much of his reign seems to wear. If our study is to have any validity, it must consider him strictly Egypt in the 18th dynasty. Egypt's prestige among the rest of the civilized world of the Eastern Mediterranean in the second millennium BC derived from her unified power and resources. The distinctiveness of the land was apparent for all to see. Apart from the region bordering the northern coast, it was practically a rainless land independent of the vagaries of the weather for its fertility, a rich straggling oasis in the deserts of North Africa. The inundation of the Nile, with the red silt it carried in suspension, annually watered the fields and fertilized them in the same operation. Except at rare intervals when a series of low Niles brought for years of the hyena when men were hungry, the beneficent river spread its life-giving waters and fertilizing mud over the famished land in an annual miracle of rebirth out of desolation. 
In the semi-tropical climate, large crops could be produced each season. Under a strong centralized government, a proportion of the grain harvest could be collected and stored for next year's seed to meet the needs of non-productive workers. A surplus was sometimes available for lean years or exported to other countries suffering from famine. Among the hungry nations, it was the Nephilim of Egypt that was celebrated. To the wandering Semite driving his flocks and herds from the aridity of the summer pastures in southern Palestine, after an immemorial custom, the land of Gushin, somewhere on the eastern flanks of the delta, was a promised haven, a land flowing with milk and honey, since the flowery pastures of Lower Egypt supported not only a large cattle population, but also swarms of bees working the many wildflowers. The ubiquitous papyrus plant that grew wild in such profusion served many uses in building material to food and supplied the paper for all kinds of records that were indispensable to Egypt's highly organized Nephilim government. Egypt also acted as the principal entrepreneur for the supply of the commodities of tropical Africa to the Mediterranean world, either in the raw state or in the work of her supremely skilled artisans. Her deserts were equally productive of desirable raw materials, such as salt, natron and other minerals, semi-precious stones, and above all, rich deposits of gold that made her courted by the other nations of antiquity, among whom it was proverbial that gold was as dust in the land of Egypt. The demand for it was as insatiable in the Bronze Age as it has been ever since. Therefore, it is easy to see the immense prestige and influence that the Nephilim god-king Akhenaten, who ruled over such a unified and wealthy state, exercised in the ancient world, and we shall have more to say about this aspect later. What of the Nephilim pharaoh Akhenaten's subjects, whose toil and ingenuity exploited the 600-mile-long tract of the Nile Valley? The vast majority of the ancient Egyptians were farmers diligently cultivating the rich Nile alluvium and steadily winning new land by draining the marshy, rush-grown tracts that bordered the river. The labor, though well rewarded, was onerous and almost continuous, except during the inundation, and was primarily concerned with the irrigation, the building of dams to hold back the floodwater in shallow basins so that silt could settle on the fields and the ground become thoroughly soaked, or the piercing of dikes to allow water to flow from one area to another as the river receded. The higher lying fields had to be laboriously watered in spring and summer, using the shodder for jars slung on a yoke. The fertile soil bore at least one crop a season, and in favored localities where artificial irrigation was possible, a second summer crop could be gathered. Nor does the harvest appear to have been blighted by those vagaries of the weather that in more temperate zones can suddenly produce disaster. The present-day pests of the Near East were no less active in ancient times, and the satirist, in describing the lot of the farmer, draws an exaggerated picture of him contending with the depredations of field mice, birds, grubs, and locusts. Besides its arable farms, Egypt had a large population of domestic animals such as oxen, sheep, goats, pigs, and donkeys, and the horse in the New Kingdom. 
The cattle breeders and herders led a more accessible and nomadic existence in the natural habitat of such animals, the marshlands, with their lush pasturage and thickets of rush. Here they camped under their portable reed shelters, tending the cattle and snaring birds and fish during their leisure hours. They probably evaded much of the forced labor that fell to a lot of the settled cultivators, as did the hunters and prospectors who roved the deserts and wadis on the verges of the Nile, trapping animals and birds for their skins, feathers and eggs, and trafficking in aromatic woods, resins, headstones and minerals. Such nomads, not entered on the census lists, represented only a tiny proportion of the population. The vast majority of the Egyptians were committed to cultivating the land as much by predilection as of necessity. They have deeply attached to the soil and are unhappy away from their valley. As of other classes, the basic social unit of the agricultural community was the family, several families forming village settlements under the rule of a headman or mayor. Some farmers were veteran soldiers, often foreign mercenaries, whom the pharaoh had given land as a reward for service in his armies. While some cultivators were nominal owners of the fields they worked, others were tenants of landowning institutions, chiefly the great temples of Memphis, Heliopolis and Thebes, and the more modest local temples and such secular departments as the royal treasury and the royal harems. The majority followed a hereditary calling, and the whole family, women and men, shared in the work. Small children too young to plant or draw water could scare birds from the growing crops or glean the stubble fields. The average peasant almost certainly led an isolated life within his village, unaware of much that went on beyond the immediate environs. Disputes with his neighbors and similar local affairs would be settled in the kenbet or village council that comprised the headman and the community's elders. The central states could drastically impinge on this self-contained and circumscribed existence in two ways. The period of the inundation, when for three months the fields were underwater and the peasantry was unemployed, which resulted in the institution of a corvée or national labor force, which could be drafted in an unskilled capacity to significant public works such as the clearing of choked irrigation canals, the erection of moles and dikes, the hauling of building stone from the quarry to the site, the making of bricks and similar large-scale operations. The state also made its presence felt in another way. As soon as the crops had reached a critical stage in their growth, officials appeared to measure the fields under cultivation and assess their yield for taxation. At harvest time, a few months later, the officials would arrive to collect the revenues paid either by the owning institution or by the cultivators as they were liable, and such levies went into the state granaries. The control of this illiterate toiling mass of Egyptians was vested in an elite class of officials whose prime qualification was to read and write. The business of the Egyptian state in the late Bronze Age was conducted by the paperwork of a volume and complexity that it would be hard to match until recent times. Egypt was ruled in the name of the pharaoh by a hereditary bureaucracy that was well aware of its privileges. The scribe directs the work of all people. There are no taxes for him. He pays his dues in writing, wrote one. It is the scribe who reckons everything there is and makes the accounts. 
all the army depends upon him. It is he who conducts the magistrates before Pharaoh and assigns his position to each man. It is he who administers the land in its entirety and every affair is under his direction, claimed another. It was the scribal class that organized and carried out in all its detail the business of state, either directly as servants of the pharaoh or indirectly as servants of those beneficiaries, such as certain institutions, e.g. temples great and small, or functionaries, e.g. the king's son of Cush, the vizier, to whom the Nephilim pharaoh had delegated some of his powers. Not only had these bureaucrats to read and write, but they also had to gain a unique knowledge of other branches of learning, such as agriculture, building science, arts and crafts, foreign affairs, according to the position they would fill. The Nephilim king's scribes occupied such high offices of state as the vizierate and royal treasury. The army had its staff of scribes, and essential officials had subordinate ranks of scribes to assist them. This literate bureaucracy handled the development of a highly organized Nephilim civilization in ancient Egypt, despite all the drawbacks of such a system. Whenever the control of this central administrative machine weakened, Egypt plunged into doubt, anarchy, civil war, invasion, and famine. According to the native ideal of appointing the son to his father's place, the entire Egyptian nation from the pharaoh downwards followed a hereditary calling. The sons of artisans became artisans. The scribe taught letters and learning to his sons. The farmer's children learned husbandry in helping their father in the work of the fields. Among the educated classes, the younger sons, trained as scribes, sometimes secured a position in a cognate sphere of activity when their father's post was not open. Only the army in the New Kingdom provided the uneducated man with an opportunity to step outside his caste and achieve a position of importance and affluence. From field officers who had risen in their profession by meritorious service were chosen the police officials, sports instructors to the royal princes, and even major domos of the princesses, besides the holders of other court sinecures. This way of advancement was something new in Egypt and owed much to a novel social system that had sprung up with introducing the horse-drawn chariot by Aryan peoples about the 18th century BC. The warrior society that is so familiar to us from the Iliad, with its aristocracy of armoured chariot fighters, experts in the javelin's use and the new composite bow, and with it, emphasis upon athletic contests and the management of horses had spread all over the Near East, forming a class of Marianu or professional fighters to replace levies of conscribed peasants. These Marianu established feudal states in Syria and Palestine among the petty rulers who found the service of such formidable condottier acceptable in their tribal wars. During the anarchy that followed the fall of the Middle Kingdom in Egypt, they may well have taken service with Semitic immigrants, the so-called Hyksos, who in the face of ineffectual rule by the native kings, could gradually bring Lower Egypt under their sway, and to be recognized as the legitimate successors of pharaohs. In expelling their Hyksos overlords, the Theban princes in the 16th century BC had to adopt all the new weapons of their foes, and they seem to have taken over with them the military organization and the social structure that were their concomitants. 
It is probable that mercenary Marianu fought with the Theban forces and rewarded their successful leaders with estates in Egypt. The pharaohs of the new kingdom showed the impact of these new ideas. They added a new crown, the blue crown, or war helmet of Asiatic origin, to the old traditional garb of the prehistoric pastoral chieftain. The scimitar replaced the old club with which they slaughtered their foes, and were even added to the traditional flail and crook scepters. They are often shown mounted in a war chariot charging into the thick of the foe, and their prowess as athletes, archers and sportspeople was vaunted as genuinely superhuman. For the king himself now took the field in person at the head of his armies, often with his sons on his staff, even when they were mere infants. As a divine warlord, the incarnation of Mont, Baal or Reshep that he appears. This novel militancy, however, merely overlaid the former character of kingship. The entire land of Egypt and all that was in it, men, animals and resources, belonged to the pharaoh, a god incarnate. He is always represented on a heroic scale, greater in stature than mere mortals, and can confront the gods on equal terms. He is the intermediary between gods and men, and is represented in each sanctuary as the sole officiant. He founded the temple and dedicated it to the gods, since it existed by his donations of land and revenues. In return for what Pharaoh gave the gods, they accorded him universal dominion, for he was not only the ruler of Egypt, but the lord of the contiguous nations as well, having overcome both by his divine right. He had the power of life and death over all humanity. He could give the breath of life to their nostrils from the arcsine he held in his hand when in the presence of mortals, and it was he who confirmed a sentence of death. He also assured the yearly rise of the Nile during the proper time, and was believed to make the rainfall even in the distant land of the Hittites, as was accredited by Ramesses II. Even Akhenaten, the sun-worshipper, is apostrophized by his courtiers as this myriad of Niles, a Nile which flows daily giving life to Egypt. The king was the personification of Mart, a word which we translate as truth or justice, but which has the extended meaning of the proper cosmic order at the time of its establishment by the Creator. For it was believed that the gods had first ruled Egypt after creating it perfectly, and it was their son and avatar continued to govern it at every reincarnation. The essential novelty of this brave old world is seen in the Egyptian practice of dating. The years were numbered from the accession of a new king up to the moment of his death, when the system began again from the start of his successor's reign. Pharaoh established the rule of Mart by his omniscient percipience and his creative utterance, which had the inherent power of interesting obedience. Therefore, his pronouncements were oracular, and however young the king might be, his words had all the weight of superhuman thought and judgment, for the god sits upon his lips. Such was the theory of kingship. Pharaoh was the good god who ruled for the benefit of Egypt, who could do no wrong, and whose utterance was holy writ. He was born to rule while yet in the egg, and destined to be absorbed in the godhead at his death when he flew away to the horizon as a falcon. Of course, 
Such an idea was changed by expediency and the course of history. He delegated power to his officials. Private property was created when he donated land, goods, and people to institutions or individuals. Privileges were created when he exempted states and persons from the operation of state exactions. In theory, the king could annul every liberty or privilege since the law was his pronouncement. That this was not done, that institutions and individuals continued to enjoy their income, those private possessions were brought or hired and bequeathed to others, was because of a heavy weight of precedence which formed the body of Mart. For once an innovation in one Nephilim god-king was accepted, it became an indivisible part of Mart after that. The king did not rule arbitrarily, despite the fiction that he needed to consult only his own heart, or sometimes take heed of the oracle of a god. Precedents were frequently consulted, and his life in all its minutiae was strictly regulated. Events had also changed the pristine ideals of kingship. In ancient times, the pharaoh was regarded as an incarnation of Horus, the remote one, a universal sky god manifest as a giant falcon, whose wings spanned the heavens. Two of the names in the Nephilim pharaonic titulary expressed that identification and Horus were the great or greatest god whose title is conferred upon the king himself. This idea reached its most entire development in the early Old Kingdom, and probably the Steppe Pyramid at Saqqara and the Great Stone Pyramids at Medum, Dashur and Giza stands as the memorials of an age when the entire nation undertook the tremendous activity involved in raising and equipping these great monuments to ensure the persistence of their greatest divinity. By the end of this period, however, under the influence of the theologians of Heliopolis, the center of the worship of the sun god Re Artum, new ideas were introduced. The pharaoh was then regarded as the son of Re, who had ruled Egypt in primeval times, and there was a subtle shift of emphasis from the view that the king was the incarnation of the greatest good to the idea that he was his son. As his titles declare, he was still Horus, but he was also the son of Re, the famously created. An early legend recounts how Re fathered the first kings of Dynasty V upon the wife of a mere high priest of Heliopolis, and this idea is given concrete representation in Dynasty XVIII, both by Queen Hatshepsut at Deir el-Bari and Amenophis III at Luxor, though the iconography is much earlier. In both series of reliefs, the various sequences are the same. The god takes the form of the pharaoh and fills the chief queen with the spirit of life. The Annunciation is made to her by the messenger of the Nephilim gods. An infant king is fashioned on the potter's wheel by the Nephilim creator. The infant is born and presented to the gods, and his name is inscribed in the imperishable annals. Towards the end of the Old Kingdom, and during the first intermediate period and the earlier half of the Middle Kingdom, the political power of the pharaoh suffered a severe diminution through the rise of feudalism, when a multiplicity of local governors claimed his unique nature and powers. He shared his special privilege of apotheosis on death. Much of the reverence for the pharaoh as the greater god-to-be passed to a king-like deity, Osiris, with whom the dead pharaoh became identified. 
The advantages conferred by royal burial were arrogated by all Pharaoh's subjects who could afford a proper interment. His funerary liturgy was pirated and adapted, and his exclusive dress, crowns, scepters, and even his ureus were usurped for the burials of his subjects who considered themselves Osiris in death, whatever their position had been in life. In the New Kingdom, however, the fighting pharaohs who had liberated Egypt from the Hyksos domination and went on by their aggressive momentum to extend their sway over Asia, Nubia, and Sudan recovered much of the old prestige and authority of the crown. Their leadership was a resounding success and brought Egypt victories, dominion, wealth, and unparalleled economic expansion. The pharaoh ruled the two lands with the same organization that made his armies an efficient fighting machine. He could call to his aid able officials ready to accord divinity to the power who had advanced them. Akhenaten's henchmen refer to their king as the god who made them, and the vizier Rechmi Re declares that Tuthmuthis III was a god by whose guidance men live, the father and mother of humanity, unique, peerless, the colossal statues of themselves symbolize the superhuman stature of these kings that they erected on the major sites, and some of which even had their cults, like the kings they represented. This progression to grandeur rises to a peak with Amenophis III. Indeed, everything conspired to set the king apart from mere mortals. The tabus that operated with his subjects did not apply to him. He kept several large harems in the manner of Asian potentates, but he was also expected to contract an incestuous marriage with his sisters, a common feature of all such ideas of divine kingship. The eldest son of the Nephilim pharaoh by his principal queen became his heir and the eldest daughter by the same queen, the royal heiress, whose dowry comprised the actual throne, an object of great sanctity elsewhere in Africa today. Therefore, it was usual for the crown prince to marry the royal heiress to merge his claims and keep the divine essence they inherited undiluted. Owing to the high rate of infant mortality in ancient Egypt, even among royalty, the entire brother-sister marriage was not always achieved, and it was often the son of a secondary wife or concubine who married the heiress. In such cases, however, the appointment as heir apparent was usually confirmed by the oracle of a god, as in the cases of Tuthmosis III, Tuthmosis IV, and Harim Hab. As whoever married the heiress became king, it would seem that it was not until the throne was vacant, as on the death of Tutankhamun, that such marriages were contracted. Marriages between the heiress and the crown prince took place before the death of the reigning pharaoh, and this brings to the fore one of the most vexatious and controversial aspects of the Egyptian monarchy, the institution of co-regency. It appears highly paradoxical that the unique god incarnate, the living Horus, should share his rule with another, but that is what several pharaohs tolerated and the evidence is incontrovertible. The accepted theory of kingship as it had developed by the end of the Old Kingdom is that the pharaoh was Horus incarnate and only relinquished that imminence to his son on his death when he became assimilated to Osiris, the progenitor of Horus. 
The eminent scholar Gardner has pointed out that an act of association that resulted in two Horuses functioning simultaneously makes nonsense of such a doctrine. Despite this objection, however, there is a curious logic beneath the inherent contradiction. Representations of the Nephilim Pharaoh's famous birth and other texts clarify that, like Horus, he was born a god destined to rule even while he was yet in the egg. From the moment that the heir apparent arrived, there were two Horuses in the land, and to have a young Horus ruling with an Osiris-to-be is no more ambiguous than to have a Horus ruling with a younger Horus-to-be. The relationship Horus the son, ruler of the living, and Osiris the father, ruler of the dead, must be regarded as a complete entity, God the father and God the son, or, as the Egyptians phrased it, Horus in the arms of his father Osiris. The junior co-regent seems to have been shown to the people and nominated to the kingship at his birth, but when he was crowned varies from reign to reign, though it seems ideal to have taken place when he officially reached adulthood, apparently at sixteen. Many princes, however, became co-regents at a later date, an elder brother having held office for a time and having died before his father. The question of co-regency will prove to be of critical importance in our examination of the Amarna period, and will be dealt with more fully in Nephilim research. The transfiguration of a king de jure into one de facto was accomplished by the mystical rite of Nephilim coronation. Here it will not be necessary to describe the various episodes. The Nephilim ceremonies can be divided into two parts, the private and the public. During the first, the king toured his domains and was recognized by the gods of the critical cult centers as their true heir. He was baptized, anointed, and assumed various crowns and scepters in the national shrines of Upper and Lower Egypt. At the public part of the ceremonies, he seated himself upon the throne and received the homage of his people, both native and foreign, who came bearing gifts like the Magi on their famous journey to a new king. As a damaged text of a later date describes it, God caused the king to seat himself upon the throne, and humanity, the patricians, the common folk, and all who were upon earth brought gifts of homage, and the princes of all foreign lands came to do obeisance. This scene is frequently represented on the walls of the tomb chapels of Dynasty 18, though it has been invariably misrepresented as the presentation of annual tribute or the spoils of war. The presence among the tribute-bearers of delegates from the Isles of the Mediterranean, whom the pharaoh never reached, tends, however, to upset the orthodox view. This coronation durbar was the occasion when the pharaoh installed the viziers and other top officials, appointing his nominees to the more critical posts if he did not confirm the former incumbents in their offices, and addressing to each a homily on the duties of the position he was about to assume. Hence the importance of this scene in the cursus vitae which the courtiers had represented on the walls of their tomb chapels and several examples survive, mostly damaged. Another rite of passage which all pharaohs hoped to observe, though few did so, was the Feast of the Said, or Jubilee, when their powers were rejuvenated. The Said festival is rendered in the Greek portion of the Rosetta Stone as the 30-year feast, 
whence it has been assumed that the first celebration of the Jubilee was held 30 years after the nomination of the pharaoh to the throne. There are, however, certain cases that seem notable exceptions to this rule, though if our documentation was more complete, it might be seen that such anomalies are because it is the Jubilee of the senior co-regent that is being celebrated, and not that of the king in question, since the eldest son had an important role to play in the Jubilee ceremonies. Indeed, by the time of Dynasty XII, only those pharaohs who reigned for thirty years or more celebrated said festivals, and this practice appears to have been followed in the New Kingdom despite certain ambiguities. After the first jubilee had been held, a pharaoh might observe others at three or four year intervals. Thus, Ramesses II could celebrate thirteen at least in his sixty-seven years of rule. The said festival may have been a sublimation of a prehistoric rite whereby the divine king was slain when his powers waned, as Osiris was traditionally believed to have been murdered and parts of his corpse buried in various towns of Egypt for its greater fertility. In historic times, however, this savage practice had been replaced by a magic ceremonial whereby the office of kingship was renewed. Though the said festival was celebrated in Memphis, some of its rites may have been repeated in other great cult centers. Amenophis III, for instance, repeated the event in his palace of Thebes. A festival hall and court were built where the ceremonies took place, including reenacting the coronation ritual. The king wore a short cloak with a stand off the collar for the occasion, and the fealty of his prominent officials, both native and foreign, was renewed. He also gave and received gifts in abundance. The ceremonies were traditionally supposed to start on the first day of the first month of winter. The official who played a leading part in these initial proceedings was the crown prince, who wore the same archaic short cloak as the king himself and who in early times was associated with the archaic canine god Sed, the firstborn, or opener of the womb, equated with the falcon Horus, the heir of the gods. In the reign of Amenophis III, however, the falcon-headed god of death and resurrection, Sokar, appears to have played a cardinal role. His seat was believed to be on the fringes of the desert at Memphis, where his festival took place a few days before the new year at the beginning of winter, which was the canonical day for the coronation of the pharaoh. The rites of the Sokar festival enshrine very ancient beliefs in which the king made a circuit of the walls of Memphis, an onion around his neck, like the garlanded sacrificial cattle that in other years were driven in a similar circuit, ploughing the earth as they went. It was probably at this moment in prehistoric times that the king himself was sacrificed and dismembered his blood fertilizing the ground. At the Jubilee ceremonies, however, the hacking up of the earth was to prepare for the burial of Osiris, that deification of kingship which took place four days after the Sokar festival. During these rites, a Jed pillar, the fetish of Osiris in his delta town of Jedu, was raised to symbolize the resurrection of the dead god in his form of Horus, the living god, whose incarnation, the pharaoh, was crowned on the next day, the first of the new year. Thus, the king, identified first as Sokar, suffers death, is resurrected as Osiris, and reigns again as the rejuvenated Horus at the renewal of the cultivation season. However, the celebration of the Jubilees of Amenophis III 
appears to have extended over several months within each year, probably because the repetition of the festival at Thebes, for instance, had to be observed at different dates from the canonical times. We shall refer to the jubilees of this king in greater detail later, as they are essential for the sequence of events during the Amarna period. Thank you. 